0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My guest today is Brian Abramson. Brian is a leading expert on vaccine law. He is author of the book, Vaccine, Vaccination, and Immunization Law, published by Bloomberg Law. Brian is also a professor teaching vaccine law at Florida International University College of Law. Brian, thanks for joining me again today. Hey, it's always a pleasure. So we're going to discuss President Biden's vaccine mandate, the California school system's vaccine mandate for children 5 to 12, and then I'd also like to revisit the Jacobson case, which is the source or the precedent for these... Uh, vaccine mandates. Does that sound good? Yeah, it sounds like a fun time. All right. So you're going to give us an update today. Uh, Since we last spoke, President Biden mandated vaccine policy across the states for companies with 100 or more employees that they must get vaccinated or test weekly at their own expense, not the employer's. And uh, the Fifth District had something to say about this. So, Brian, why don't you explain the mandate to the listeners? Who is enforcing it? And uh, also give us just the geographical location of the Fifth Fifth District, please.
1: Uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit is Texas, Louisiana, and. I think Arkansas or Oklahoma, it's it's in that area. But Texas and Louisiana are the, the main states that are participants in that district. And the, the Biden administration plan that was announced in on September 9th, 2021, actually has three big kind of set pieces to it. One of them is this OSHA mandate. A second one is a CMS requirement. CMS is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And virtually every hospital or major healthcare entity in the country receives CMS funds. And basically, the administration said, you're not going to receive these funds if your staff is not fully vaccinated. And then the um, third item was for federal contractors, which actually is much farther reaching than many people may think, is actually a lot more far reaching than many people may think. You know, when you think of federal contractors, you think of like Northrop Grumman building the next generation of fighter jet for the government, but it's also whatever company is hired to empty the wastebaskets at a federal government building. And a company can have federal contracting as a fairly small proportion of its business, but still be covered by this federal contractor mandate. So there are three different kind of routes through which the administration is trying to cover about a hundred million employees. The most expansive of these is this OSHA requirement. The OSHA requirement says that any company with more than 100 employees, and it's very liberally applied, it doesn't matter if it's full-time or part-time workers or workers who are kind of there for a seasonal purpose. If you get over 100 employees, you're under the standard. Those companies are required to either have their employees fully vaccinated for COVID or have weekly testing. And the weekly testing is... Somewhat onerous. It's not something that employees can do by themselves at home. The standard requires that it be done either through some third party that's checking the results, or done in the presence of the employer. So even if the cost is shifted to the employee where they have to pay for the test, it's going to take some amount of resources from the employer to check up on this. Particularly if the employers requiring employees to be tested on site under the supervision of somebody who works for the company. One of the really interesting things about this national standard is that OSHA's document supporting the standard is 490 pages, which is, it's just enormous for a document of this sort. And it's something they put together in about two months. And I don't know how many people in the country have actually read through the entire document line by line from cover to cover, but I did because I wanted to see everything that was in there. And I found some some pretty interesting things, some things that raised a lot of questions for me. Well, do explain. Well, since you asked, one of the things that I find most curious about it is that there are certain exemptions within it. Now, it makes sense that it exempts people who work entirely remotely and people who work entirely outdoors and so forth. But another big area of exemption is that it doesn't cover the healthcare industry. And the reason that it doesn't is because in June of this year, before the Biden administration came out with all of these plans and sort of said, well, we've lost patients in terms of the vaccination rate, OSHA had produced an emergency temporary standard just for the healthcare industry. And this emergency temporary standard doesn't have a vaccination requirement. It doesn't have a testing requirement. It just says that entities in the healthcare industry have to take measures such as having barriers and social distancing, air cleaning, ventilation in workplaces, and they have to ask employees. And it's just a verbal questioning process, not a testing process. Ask employees, are you having symptoms of COVID? Have you been exposed to COVID in some recent period of time? And in their November emergency temporary standard, OSHA says that they don't have evidence that companies that are complying with the June standard, that healthcare companies under the June standard uh, are at risk from COVID if they're following the requirements of the June standard. So it seems curious that they're saying, on the one hand, mandatory vaccination is necessary to protect workers, but on the other hand saying, well, workers in the healthcare industry who are using this different standard that doesn't have mandatory vaccination are sufficiently protected. And you know that's that's a problem for them when it comes to interpreting the statute under which they have their emergency temporary standard authority. The statute says that OSHA has to demonstrate that there is a grave danger to employees and that the steps that they are requiring are necessary to address that danger. And if they've already determined in an industry that is considered the most vulnerable industry for the spread of COVID that something less onerous than that standard is sufficient to protect people, then it's, it's really hard to understand how they can say under this new standard that whether well, there's a grave danger and a vaccination mandate is the thing that is necessary to prevent the spread of disease under this new standard. So us
0: as lawyers, we're trained to follow precedent. Uh, stare decisis, which is Latin for let the prior decision stand. And it makes sense. You want uh, the people and businesses to know the rules of the game. And so last time we spoke, we spoke about the Jacobson case. And for our listeners to refresh your recollection, this was a 1905 case where Mr. Jacobson was fined by the state of Massachusetts $5, which is about a couple hundred bucks today for refusing to get the smallpox vaccine. And so that's been the source of these vaccine mandates and even going into the lockdown, source of some of the, the lockdown laws. But that decision, Brian, deferred to the state's general police power to promote the health and safety of the people. And it's important to remember history. The states created the federal government. The federal government didn't create the states. And the 9th and 10th Amendment reserve a lot of the rights to the people and the states. So they say nothing about the federal government kind of crossing over into this, this area. Is that kind of where the fifth district is going in their
1: preliminary ruling? That is something that was brought up by the fifth circuit, the Jacobson case in particular, and the fact that it did apply to a state regulation and, you know, what the Biden administration has done here is unprecedented on the federal level. There have been federally imposed quarantines before, but never a federally imposed vaccination mandate reaching beyond people who are in some area that is specifically under federal control. So, historically, where you have seen vaccination mandates emanating from the federal government, they've been directed towards military personnel, federal employees, immigrants entering the United States and other individuals like that who are specifically under some area of federal control. And this is, this is novel. This is the first time in history that we've had a vaccination mandate come from a federal agency that is directed towards people who are not in any sense employed by the federal government or in one of these sort of narrow categories of people who fall under uh, federal authority. Now, OSHA, is a long standing statute by itself. And it has been upheld by the courts on a number of occasions that OSHA has and, and the ability that it has to regulate safety in areas such as requiring that electrical equipment be grounded and that areas not have uh, wires strewn on the floor and that workers in high places have harnesses or railings and things of that sort. It hasn't uh, required vaccination. There is a 1991 bloodborne pathogen standard that OSHA issued which has vaccination as a component but it's a requirement that employers offer the vaccine to employees and that employees not receiving the vaccine sign a form indicating that they understand that they're still vulnerable and that they have the ability to receive that vaccine uh, at no charge. But again that's not a requirement that's not a mandate imposed on on anyone. So you know we're in uncharted territory with the use of osha as a vehicle to press vaccination of any population and there are uh, real and substantial questions of the degree to which the federal government can engage in this sort of activity and you know this is this is a new action it's not a new question it's something that legal scholars have pondered about in a hypothetical sense for decades what if we had a severe epidemic of some kind of disease? Would the government, the federal government, have the power to do this? And, you know, there are there are very open questions about where in the Constitution the federal government would find the authority uh, to carry out such an act.
0: Yeah, no, that's a fair point. But to just play devil's advocate, you know, I forget who, who coined this phrase, but I love it. One of the Supreme Court justices said, the states are the laboratories of democracy, and it's good for our democracy to see how California handles this versus how Texas handles this or how the difference between New York and Florida, sort of the, the great experiment of uh, democracy, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So getting back to the Fifth
1: Circuit, it was a pretty short decision, but where do you think it, is this headed to the Supreme Court? I think there's no question that this is going to end up in the Supreme Court, and it's probably going to end up there in fairly short order. I would not be at all surprised if we have a decision, you know, briefing and a decision in the Supreme Court before the end of this year. The OSHA mandate is stayed pursuant to the order of the Fifth Circuit. However, OSHA's requirement that employees be vaccinated didn't really have any any teeth to it. There wasn't anything that was supposed to happen until December 6th. So there is some time, at least from OSHA's perspective, before they have to change any plans that they were going to carry out. And the way that the OSHA mandate was structured, it, the consequence for having unvaccinated employees was that you would have to start this testing regime. That was not scheduled to start until January 4th. So really, OSHA isn't in a position where anything has changed for them until that January 4th deadline rolls around and they want to be able to start saying that employers who have unvaccinated employees are going to face some kind of penalty for that. It's also, I think, important to note that OSHA already was sort of overtaxed as an agency in terms of the scope of its mission prior to this COVID mandate issue coming about. So, and there has been no, you know, great infusion of additional resources for for OSHA to be able to oversee this. What OSHA has typically done historically is they propound these standards um, in terms of employee safety, whether it's um, protective equipment that employees on a job site have to wear, or you know anything like that, and then they either wait for whistleblowers, they wait for kind of disgruntled employees who say you know, I feel unsafe on this work site or my, my company's not enforcing whatever the requirement is or I was injured or I know someone who's injured or they wait for actual injury reports because employers are required to report to OSHA when work-related injuries occur. And so they wait until they get something like that and then they investigate uh, a particular company or entity. And it's a process. It's not necessarily an instant, okay, We have a report that's been filed with us. We're going to come in and fine you. Typically, OSHA comes in and they investigate and very often go through some sort of kind of negotiating process with the employer where the employer agrees to improve conditions or something like that. So under the mandate that OSHA issued in November, basically it says that employers who don't comply are subject to the full OSHA fine, which is about $14,000 per instance of noncompliance where noncompliance is found. And then it can be up to 10 times that much if it's sort of willful noncompliance where the employer is like, well, we got this OSHA requirement and we're going to defy it as opposed to uh, we're we're trying to comply with it, but we're doing a lousy job of it. But I wouldn't expect OSHA to come in and start giving these $14,000 fines to employers in the first instance. It would be something where OSHA would, get a report they would go to investigate they would say oh you need to tighten up your procedures here and initially they might let people off with a warning or they might say okay it's going to be a much smaller fine than the maximum amount you know that's the the typical way that things operate within the agency now it's very clear that osha is under a lot of pressure from the biden administration to push this As I noted, OSHA issued an emergency temporary standard in June of this year for the healthcare industry that does not have this vaccination mandate, that that doesn't go that far. That seems to be as far as OSHA wanted to go with taking steps in the workplace to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The November mandate wasn't something, at least reportedly, wasn't something that was of OSHA's own initiative. They apparently had about a week's notice before the Biden administration announced that OSHA is going to have this requirement for all em- employers with over hundred employees. So, you know, this is something where OSHA is kind of scrambling to catch up to what the administration wants to do. And in reading the, that 490 page document, even though they put together a lot of text in a short period of time, there are some parts of it where you can kind of see that, that playing catch up. They have a whole section where they talk about why is this, Hundred employee cutoff, a good cutoff, and there's a lot of reasoning about how well employers over that size will have the the HR set up to be able to enforce something like this. But it's really it's really post hoc. It's really like, okay, somebody told us this was the number we were going to have to go with, and now we have to come up with the reasoning to justify it. And that by itself is something that the Fifth Circuit kind of questioned and attacked, and said, well, why is it that a company with 101 employees, if you know, with 99 of them working completely from home and not, not uh, subject to this vaccination requirement, they're still under the standard, while a company with 99 employees who are working on a factory floor side by side are not subject to the standard. And that's a real problem for OSHA, that there does seem to be this kind of inconsistency in how it's going to work and how it's going to be enforced arising from that arbitrary number and the fact that it's, it's focused on that number of employees that the company has, as opposed to even the number of employees that are working in physical proximity to each other. So what's your
0: prediction on uh, President Biden's vaccine mandate, if and when
1: it heads up to the Supreme Court? Crystal ball. Well, I have said from the beginning, from the issuance of this, this is the first step in a waltz. And it's the regulatory waltz. And we've seen that Before in many other industries and with many other statutes, you have an ambitious, perhaps overreaching statute or regulation that is enacted. And then pieces of it are challenged. And some of those pieces uh, will fall away under the challenge. They'll be held to go beyond what the power of the agency is. Some of them, I think, will be upheld. I think the general power... of OSHA to to regulate the healthcare or to regulate employers on this question of the spread of COVID-19, I think that will be upheld. I do think there will be a substantial cabining of the ability of the agency to impose a vaccination mandate as aggressively as they're trying to do, to say you have these two choices. One of them is you have to have everyone vaccinated. The other is you have to have this rather onerous weekly testing. And I think they will end up having to do something like saying, okay, as a third option, we're going to let all companies adhere to the kind of strictures that we allowed for the healthcare industry where, okay, you know, you have, you have social distancing and you have asking people, how do you do you feel sick when they come into work? And that as a third option will be enough. And I think that if OSHA, if OSHA were to do that, That would take enough of the teeth out of the mandate, out of the vaccination mandate uh, and make it enough of a kind of distant requirement that it would become almost advisory. And the courts would say, well, you know, certainly OSHA can say it's a good idea to have a vaccinated work staff, but they can't do things that result in big fines for companies that don't have a vaccination mandate and aren't taking up weekly testing as the the sole alternative to that. So. And just to be
0: clear on the legality of all this, if a state government was to pass this type of legislation, it would have a lot more uh,
1: legality, I
0: guess, under the Jacobson decision. Is that a fair point?
1: Yes. Under Jacobson, it is fairly plenary, the authority of a state government to mandate vaccination. And remember, in Jacobson, the government mandated vaccination for all citizens, of the uh, in that case it was it was i think the city the municipal government did but for everyone residing everyone over the age of 18 i think residing in the city and even people under 18 unless they had a medical exemption and they didn't provide a medical exemption for people over the age of 18 so you know that's that's kind of a remarkable thing to say that as a government we're going to require everyone living here irrespective of their work circumstances, whether they're leaving the house or not, we're going to require them to be vaccinated. And if they're not vaccinated, then the penalty is an actual uh, criminal fine. So the difference here, I think, is what OSHA is doing is they're saying, we're not requiring individuals to be vaccinated. We're requiring companies to have a vaccination mandate. And if the individuals employed by the company are not vaccinated, it's the company that's going to be fined. States do have, under the Jacobson precedent, the ability to say, we're going to require vaccination of all, all the people in some area, and we're going to institute some penalty for people who are unvaccinated. But you know, we're not seeing states doing that. Uh, what we are seeing the states doing is requiring vaccination either to have access to some particular kinds of amenities or to work in, in certain fields. So I think what OSHA has done may provide a bit of a roadmap for states like New York and California that are inclined to have robust vaccination mandates and to press that issue very aggressively. And I think that's basically what we're going to see. An interesting side point to that is that OSHA has a state parallel kind of component where there are a number of states in the country that have their their own state occupational safety and health administration. And if that entity is uh, enforcing rules that, that the national OSHA thinks are sufficient to protect worker health, then they're actually exempt from OSHA requirements. So there are 22 states, California is certainly one of them, that have a state OSHA entity that has its own regulations. And those states on paper, at least in, in the current OSHA emergency temporary standard have until the beginning of December to announce whether they are going to have a state standard reflecting what OSHA has uh, promulgated, and if they do, then the states will technically be exempt from the OSHA standard uh, because they'll be doing it by themselves as a state standard. And you know, it's it's a very interesting divide. As so I said, there's 22 states that have that. Um, that means there's 28 states that do not, and. You know, if you look at the map, it's, it's very much kind of a red state, blue state kind of divide between which states do have their own local OSHA type entity and will ultimately likely announce some kind of state level program to do what OSHA is trying to do nationally and will be exempted from this OSHA requirement. So the OSHA requirement will end up applying only uh, primarily to those states that don't already have some kind of OSHA plan, which is an interesting twist to it, I think. Well, what what the Biden administration is
0: trying to promote, I mean, it does make sense. If you have over 100 people who are actually at a location physically, you know, requiring unvaccinated people to test weekly, it does make sense. I just wish they would have done it at the uh, employer's expense. I think that would make more sense. And uh, also, kind of maybe do a caveat if people don't want to test weekly, they could wear a mask as another option. And uh, I also wish these these tests were not so painful <laughs> because I've gotten a couple of them, and uh, I don't know if the technology is changing, but um, last time I got tested, it was very uncomfortable.
1: It is, um, and I think there are a couple different tests that are available, and I think there are some that that are not so uncomfortable at this point, but it still can be quite burdensome. It can be time consuming. One of the issues that has been raised is the fact that it takes a couple of days for the test results to come back around. So if you're testing weekly, it's been a week since your previous test and then there's some additional period of days before your results are gonna come back. Are they Are they really catching cases through this testing requirement? And I know that OSHA's rationale for having the employee bear the cost of the test is basically, well, if they if they don't want to pay this cost, they can go get vaccinated and the vaccination is free. And, you know, to a degree, OSHA, the administration had a lot of pressure from businesses, actually, and from chambers of commerce that do want vaccination mandates. And, you know, it's kind of surprising that there's there's pressure from some parts of the business community to have these mandates in place, but it's, it's partly because they do want to require that their workers be vaccinated, but then they don't want to be in a situation where they're requiring that, but they have a competitor who isn't and their employees might just go leave and work for that competitor. So the employers want it to be kind of universal and uniform so that uh, their employees don't have kind of a way out of that system where, you know, they can, They can go find someplace else to work and not have to not have to meet such a requirement. So there is certainly a fingerprint of some of the larger businesses on the way that this OSHA mandate has rolled out. And you know, that is also reflected in the fact that the cost of testing is shifted to the employees. It's not something that the businesses are are by and large going to have to absorb. Although OSHA does recognize in the statute or in the regulation, they, they they know that there may be some state laws that end up requiring businesses to absorb these costs, or there may be collective bargaining agreements or other relationships with organized labor that require the businesses to absorb these costs, even though under the regulation, it is shifted to the employee. So it's still kind of a question mark. And You know, in the world of business, they don't like question marks like that. They want things to be clearly defined. And that's certainly something that is going to feed continued pushback towards this, uh, so long as there are all these sort of unresolved questions raised by uh, the way that this was put forth. And uh, Biden's vaccine mandate made no
0: exception for people who have natural immunity who can produce a um,
1: positive antibody test, correct? Yes, and I find that to be a very interesting point as well. So OSHA addresses that in the document, and it's also addressed in the document produced by the Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services. And on the one hand, uh, the FDA has said, and, and they kind of point to this, that they are not convinced that antibody tests are reliable. But on the other hand, they point to a lot of studies showing this is the level of antibodies you get from vaccination versus the level of antibodies from infection. And those studies had to use these uh, same kind of antibody tests to determine what people's antibody levels were. So it seems incongruent to me that on the one hand, they question the uh, ability to use antibody testing to determine what level of protection you have from COVID. Uh, But on the other hand, when it comes to saying, well, you don't get as good of a level of antibodies from a natural infection. They're relying on studies that engage in exactly that kind of testing. Another thing that stuck out to me was they pointed to a study that said that if you have a serious case of COVID, your level of antibodies is about 77% of the level of antibodies you get from being fully vaccinated. Well, actually, they said that fully vaccinated is 1.25 times as much, but that translates to 77%. But in order to show that you have a grave danger from the disease, I think you would not fall into that category if you can say, well, I have 77% of the antibodies that I would have from the vaccination. That seems like a pretty robust antibody response. And certainly, if you understand the science of uh, of vaccines and of infectious disease, when the body generates any level of antibodies at all, that means that uh, the body has learned to generate an antibody response. So even if you have 1% of the antibodies that you would get from the vaccine, at, at least you know that your, your body has the ability to generate those antibodies and it can ramp that up pretty quickly in the face of an infection. And if you have 77% of the level, then that is pretty strong protection. I think that's stronger protection than you would really be able to say that someone who has that level of antibody protection is in grave danger from the disease if they don't actually also get a vaccine for the disease. So I I do find that somewhat problematic. And, you know, I do think it is also a question of developing technology. There have been improvements in antibody testing and in understanding the significance of antibody levels. You know, that's something that is continuously happening. So the fact that the, the OSHA ETS doesn't even offer any flexibility, it doesn't say, anywhere along the line that if future technology develops that makes it easier or more reliable to test antibody levels or if future research more accurately determines the level of antibodies that you need to have a robust enough response to covid-19 that you're not going to be in danger from the disease then you know will allow for some change to the policy then and I think that's a mistake on their part. And, I, you know, I also think of that in terms of a resource allocation issue. You know, there's a limited number of resources to allocate towards trying to persuade people to be vaccinated. And we're really in a persuasion stage now. And if you're, if you're focusing your efforts on people who have high levels of antibodies already because they've had a COVID infection, then that's that's kind of a wasted effort. You really should be focusing your your efforts on people who have no protection from the disease at all, you know. And even then, I think people who have no protection kind of have a right to choose to have no protection. But you know, at least uh, you'd be focusing on on people who would be the most likely to catch the disease and transmit it to others. And you know, the whole point of trying to end the pandemic is you know you want people to have some level of immunity that prevents the, the easy spread of the disease. Uh, and you shouldn't be you know, focusing any amount of resources on people who have a sufficient level of immunity where it's likely that they're not spreading the disease. So you know, natural immunity is something that's been litigated. There have been some courts that have come down with decisions and said, well, natural immunity is not enough. But you know, it's very interesting that earlier on in this process, there were prisoners in federal prisons who were seeking early release on the grounds that COVID was endemic in the prisons. And there are some cases where the judge said, well, you already had a case of COVID. You've got enough natural immunity where you're, you're protected. So we're not going to let you out of prison. And in those cases, the government was arguing, the federal government was arguing, natural immunity is sufficient to protect these people. They don't need to be released. And that's the same government who, through OSHA, is now saying that uh, natural immunity isn't reliable. We don't know enough about it. We're not going to allow that as a basis for an exemption. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a head scratcher. It's a a bit incongruous.
0: Well, we imprison more people than uh, any other country, which is alarming because China has 1 billion more people than us. So uh, not surprising there. So to recap the Biden administration's vaccine mandate, is probably headed to the Supreme Court, and in your view, um, parts of it will likely be struck down, especially considering that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just got replaced by Amy Comey Barrett. Is
1: that a fair overview? Well, I would not say that Amy Comey Barrett is going to be someone who's particularly anti-vaccine. She's already declined to stay a vaccination mandate coming out of the Seventh Circuit that was a very aggressive vaccination mandate, but it was a mandate coming from a state university and not from the federal government. So the federalism issue is one that that may give jurists such as Amy Comey Barrett pause. And you know, we'll we'll certainly see what comes out of the Supreme Court. I don't think the court is eager to really step into the issue and prevent vaccination mandates uh, during the pendency of, an, of a pandemic. Uh, you know, I think it may be the sort of thing where they let it go for now because they wanna get the, the pandemic over with, and then later on kind of revisit it and say, well, that's something that you didn't have the power to do. But I, I do think they are going to close the door a bit on OSHA's power to do this with a kind of aggressiveness that OSHA has done. You know, I think they may say, OSHA, you can, you can pressure people to vaccinate their employees. You can tell them, hey, it's a really, really good idea. And you have to give them time off to get vaccinated and so forth. But when it comes to fining people uh, merely for having employees who are not vaccinated, that might be outside the power of the federal government. And uh, the state governments have
0: a lot more power and leeway to push these vaccine mandates. So, if you live in California and New York, something like this is probably coming early next year, correct?
1: Yeah. And there's, there's a great deal of this already in California and New York in particular. New York has very robust vaccination mandates now for a number of different areas of employment. So, you know, that's, that's something that's, that's very foreseeable from uh, jurisdictions like those. And again, I I do think it's good for every state to have kind
0: of control of of these issues, but let me play devil's advocate again for a bit. So this, this decision, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, this had to do with smallpox that was killing one in three people. Our infrastructure was a lot weaker back then, hospitals, roads. What about the argument that the Jacobson decision should not apply to COVID 19. What do you make of that argument?
1: Jacobson has been applied as a precedent to a lot of vaccination mandates that have come down since then. So you have vaccina- vaccination mandates uh, for diseases like measles and mumps and chickenpox and so forth, which are also much less deadly than smallpox was. So to the extent that Jacobson has survived as a precedent, it has basically survived on these other vaccination mandates since smallpox is now extinct as a disease. You know, I have said uh, at various times that I think if Jacobson itself were being decided today, it would come out a little bit differently based on this sort of longstanding history that we have now of states having and jurisdictions having exemptions for medical reasons, and largely for religious reasons. So, you know, I think there would be some language in a case like Jacobson that was decided today, recognizing that there is a basis for medical exemptions, natural immunity may be such a basis, and that there is a basis for religious exemptions. I think it would still be held that states have the power to mandate vaccination, at least in terms of premising access to education or employment in certain industries on being vaccinated. But I do question whether in the modern environment, a state requiring every citizen physically in the jurisdiction to be vaccinated for a disease, irrespective of what kind of activities that person was engaged in, that would be fall under a greater constitutional question at this point. Fair enough. Good recap. Let's
0: talk about the school system. And I don't know if New York has followed the same thing as California, but out here in California, Governor Newsom mandated that um, children going to public and I believe private schools, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there, um, ages five to 11 must get vaccinated
1: What are the legal issues surrounding this type of mandate? Well, this is kind of the classic vaccination mandate. This is the kind of mandate that has existed for an array of other vaccines for the past several decades uh, throughout the United States. And, you know, even the most from the most liberal to the most conservative states, they have some set of vaccination mandates that are that are standard. And there are about, um, about 13 or 14 vaccines that are just required across the board, measles, mumps, rubella, uh, pertussis, tetanus, polio, You know, and those are um, kind of the standard. And COVID vaccination isn't terribly far outside of that kind of range, the major significant difference is that this is a very new vaccine uh, it's only just been authorized for use in children you know and it's it's something for which I believe that um, the licensure of the the Pfizer vaccine, which is the only licensed vaccine at this point, is only for people over the age of eighteen so uh, children are still under an emergency um, use authorization for access to any vaccine. So it's kind of surprising to me that any state would be mandating vaccination of children where the vaccine available is under emergency use authorization. Although courts have upheld mandates of the EUA vaccines for adults in in various professions or people attending colleges and universities. So the EUA status of the vaccine by itself isn't necessarily going to present a legal barrier it's just kind of surprising in its aggressiveness. And, you know, I think that vaccines generally are safe and effective that the, the testing that is required, the clinical trials are very thoroughly supervised and well done and have a lot of layers of review. So that, that doesn't concern me so much, but you know, I've never really been a big fan of vaccination mandates Uh, Because the stricter the mandate, the more pushback you tend to get. And it it becomes counterproductive at at some point. So, you know, I think there's a degree to which it's safer to say we're going to encourage people to be vaccinated, but not require them to be vaccinated and, and let them make that choice and let parents make that choice with respect to their children Uh, whether California has the legal power to do what they're doing. I think uh, they do. You know, that's, that's something that is fairly long and well settled with respect to vaccines that uh, have substantially more adverse effects than the COVID vaccines have been reported to have, at least insofar as CDC investigations of adverse event reports have uh, determined. So, it's uh, something that, again, we're, we're on the edge of history. There are things that are happening that, have, that go beyond what has ever been done before. I think those are things that are likely to be upheld by the courts. I don't think that I would agree that it's necessarily the best public policy approach for states to be that aggressive in mandating vaccination and carrying that out in areas where it is most likely to stir our responsive opposition.
0: You would give the same caveat that if a child has natural immunity, there
1: could be uh, due process concerns there. I do think so. I do think that. Well, first of all, the states will always have medical exemptions, and California does not have religious exemptions generally. But my understanding is it does allow religious exemptions for COVID vaccination at this time, for COVID vaccination for students at least. And I don't know if that's something that, you know, they, they had a religious exemption for all vaccines at some time in the past. And then after there was a measles outbreak in Disneyland, they revoked that. And it's probably something that would likely be revoked for COVID at some point in the future. But natural immunity, you know, it's it's a good question. And I think there are questions about what are the effects of having an infection uh, for someone who's a small child as opposed to someone who is an adult in terms of what the immune response is likely to be. And certainly we see that with a lot of other vaccines, you know, we give them to people in their infancy. And if you give them to someone when they're an infant, then the vaccine has a more robust effect that if you, than if you were to give that same vaccine to an adult who had never been vaccinated. So it may well be that children who have a case of COVID, develop a stronger immune response than adults who have that same kind of case of COVID. And that's something that, you know, we have to wait for the science to catch up on, but the research is being done. And there certainly shouldn't be any kind of presumption that, you know, we'll never get to a point where natural immunity um, is effective uh, to be demonstrated as an alternative vaccination. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the statutes that are written sort of don't even contemplate the possibility that natural immunity will be found in the future uh, to be effective. And I think that's a mistake. I think there should generally be built into policies, regulations, statutes, a recognition that scientific understanding of this virus is changing uh, all the time and evolving. And that If the science evolves to the point where we know this to be the case, we know natural immunity to be effective for people in this particular age group, depending on tests of their antibody levels that can determine specific levels, then certainly that should should be an allowance already provided for in legislation and policy for an exemption from vaccination on that basis. And uh, would
0: you give the same sort of caveat that it, potentially could be a due process violation if a child is unvaccinated, does not have a positive antibody test, but is willing to wear a mask every day.
1: What are your thoughts on that scenario? I think that, you know, there's actually an interesting question of how effective masks really are in preventing the spread of COVID. And that's been a debate all its own, whether masking requirements make sense where wearing a mask has much less of a, of a diminutive effect on spread of disease than vaccination does. You know, so I don't know that uh, that is a direction that schools would be willing to go, especially with small children. And it's really hard to control uh, a small child's wearing a mask throughout the day and how they interact with other people. But you know, one of the interesting things that we've seen in the COVID pandemic overall is that historically, where you have school systems and children are exempt from the measles vaccination, for example, then they're treated just like every other student. They're not required to wear a mask or anything like that just because they don't have this measles vaccination. They may be excluded from school when there's an actual measles outbreak, which is a very rare thing, but for the most part, uh, they're not treated any differently at all. Now in employer-employee situations, The standard has been that if an employee can't be vaccinated, the employer uh, requires vaccination, and the employee says, I have a medical basis or a religious basis, then the employer has to accommodate that. And mask wearing is a very typical accommodation, mask wearing, changing of job duties so they're not interacting with other people, working remotely, having an office that is isolated from other employees, not using a common break room. You know, there are all sorts of things that are typically applied as accommodations in the employment sphere, and that is pursuant to the fact that people have a right not to be required to be vaccinated if they have a medical exemption under the Americans with Disabilities Act and under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, not to be vaccinated if they have a religious objection. And we are seeing in schools, at least in college and university mandates that have been enacted since the COVID pandemic began, we're seeing actions more along the lines of uh, something that you would see with an accommodated employee with mask wearing and testing as an alternative to being vaccinated. It's not something that's typically done in the schools uh, at the elementary school and to high school level. It may be something that we start seeing, but, you know, there's real questions there also as to whether mask wearing would actually be effective for any purpose. Is there a
0: distinction between private schools and public schools or in uh, this California mandate system, or do the same rules apply?
1: It is my understanding that the rules apply equally to public and private schools, and that is something that has been upheld in the courts in the past, that the state has the ability to impose the same restrictions on private schools as they do on public schools. Of course, with public schools, the state has more control over how things are carried out because the people who are carrying them out are ultimately employees of the state or employees of the school district, uh, which is under more authority from the state. And conversely, private schools can be more aggressive in their vaccination mandates than the public schools are being if they choose to be. So, you know, it's, uh, it's certainly within the power of the state to do that. It may be enforced a little bit differently. And there are also always questions of how much the state has in terms of resources to enforce their requirements. It's one thing to say, this is what you're required to do. Another thing to kind of check up on and make sure people are doing it and impose consequences or penalties if people are not doing what the state has issued as an edict that they're required to do. Brian, you're the best. I really appreciate your time
0: and expertise and educating me and our listeners. And uh, if this does go back up to the, this goes up to the Supreme Court, love to pick your brain after a Supreme Court decision.
1: I will certainly have a lot to talk about at that point. Yes.
0: Thank you, sir. Take care. My pleasure.